I'm always on the lookout for a good Python UI framework. In this episode, we're going to focus on one called Dear PyGUI. Dear PyGUI is a fast and powerful graphical user interface toolkit for Python with minimal dependencies. It's created by Jonathan Hofsted and Preston Cothran, and they're here to tell us all about it. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 348, recorded November 18th, 2021. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is brought to you by Sentry and TopTal. Please check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Let me tell you about a new project I'm working on. It's a YouTube series called Python Shorts. This series will consist of fun and quick videos teaching you one amazing thing about Python. They're usually less than five minutes long and put a practical spin on topics you might have been wondering about but never took the time to dig into. I just released the first two videos parsing data with Pydantic, and counting the number of times an item appears with collections.counter. I already have a list of about 100 videos to create over the next year in this series, so there will be many more to come. And if you have an idea for one, please shoot me an email or tweet, and I'll add it to my list. If these sound fun, please subscribe to my personal YouTube channel. Just visit talkpython.fm slash python shorts to see the playlist, and there you can click on my face and subscribe. You may already be subscribed to Talk Python's YouTube channel. That's where we do the live streaming of the recordings, but I decided on my personal one, so be sure to subscribe there too if you want to get these videos. Thanks for listening, and thank you for supporting all of my work. Let's get to that interview. Jonathan Preston, welcome to Talk Python to me. Hi, glad to be here. Hey, it's great to have you guys here. I'm very excited to talk about GUIs and UI frameworks and stuff like that. I think Python needs more of it, and... We're building some cool projects, frameworks there. Yeah, it'll be fun to talk about it. We're going to talk about Deer Pie GUI, which is one of these frameworks tries to have a, a quick getting started story. That is correct. Let's just get into your stories hear a little bit about you. Since there's both of you, maybe not, not too extended, but Jonathan, how do you get into programming in Python? I got into programming when I was around 13 years old. My stepdad and mom got me a C++ uh, for dummies book okay, and worked with that for a while until just as a hobby project or as a hobby thing. And once I got to college, I went to mechanical engineering, which is also where I met Preston. Hmm. They typically like to use MATLAB, which everybody knows isn't a real programming language. This, you know, <laughs> the indices start at one. Of course. Yeah, as an alternative to that, Kim Crawl's Python. It had a lot of the same features, actually a lot more features the MATLAB and it was free. So didn't have to pay for the MATLAB license. Yeah, um, MATLAB's expensive for people who haven't messed with it. It's like really expensive outside the student story. It, it, it is. And you have to use their entire environment and everything just to, just to use it. So aside from that, on top of that, with the Raspberry Pi, it was into electronics and things like that. And with the Raspberry Pi, you're able to control the GPIO pins using Python. Naturally, I just started playing with Python from there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's pretty much where Python came into my picture. So you said you were in chemical engineering? Is that what it was? Mechanical. Mechanical. Okay. I was in chemical for a little while and they said that I asked if I could take a C++ class. They said you can as an elective, but you have to take Fortran because that's going to be the most important language you ever learn. I thought, wow, I'm just jealous. MATLAB is not that amazing, but I'll tell you what, it's better than Fortran. (laughs) That is very true. We we occasionally have to use Fortran at work with a of our FEA programs, finite element analysis mm-hmm. programs with Abacus, yeah. you're able to extend it with Fortran. So occasionally we have to look at a little bit of Fortran to do that. And it's, yeah, it's ugly. Yeah, for sure. Um, Preston, how about you? Mine was mostly junior year in college, MATLAB course. Incidentally enough, that's why it's not a real programming language. <laughs> I moved from that directly into Python about when I started my first job and I just started working with C++ after that and then tailed into a little bit of C, not much. Right on. And what are you all doing now? Sounds like still engineering work. Yeah. So doing engineering. So I'm doing mechanical engineering. I do design on um, 
threaded connectors for oil and gas industry, mainly designing the uh, seals and uh, threads that hold production tubing together down hole that actually sends the oil up through the well. Wow. Um, so you must be talking about a lot of pressure, talking about materials that would like to destroy rubber and other things as well, possibly. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so I guess that, that tails into to, to coding. Mainly we, or I use most of Python to just extend that because like we were talking about for scripting and stuff like that. Yeah. John. Jonathan? I started out in the same position and slowly moved into the software side of things. A lot of that's working with Preston, some of the other mechanical engineers on extending some of those applications like Abacus and that choosing Python or extending AutoCAD and that's C++. So there's that side of the day-to-day work. And then the other side is we actually have some internal software that we work on, one for inspecting connections without contact. So using lasers and robot arms and all that stuff to basically just take measurements instead of having to go out and manually do this, this right. be on an assembly line. And most of that's in C++ and C. We, we do use our library, Deer Pagui, for a lot of the prototyping and some of the tooling for the project, but cool. for projects in uh, C and C++. Sure. I don't think I've really covered mechanical engineering on TalkPython properly. What's the story with software automation and that kind of stuff? Is it mostly using programs like sounds like this Abacus one versus writing your own software, doing your own automation? Uh, a, a large part of mechanical engineering is, at least in our field, is stress analysis and computational fluid dynamics, fluid flow type problems. And as far as software goes, it's usually in relation to that. Like Abacus is, as an example, a software package for stress analysis. And then there's other ones, OpenFoam. Yeah, OpenFoam. You, you wrote some solvers at your first job for that. Yeah, that, that's correct. We took some electives while we were in college, and some of those were for writing these solvers. And most yeah. of those you could write in whatever you want. Those professors didn't actually care. And a lot of times I wrote it in Python, or most of the time it was Python, I would say. Right, yeah. What's so. the story for packages, PyPI type of things? In your as space. far as what we used or, yeah. or what we uh, use? Yeah. Is there a lot of stuff out there? Like, I know, for example, astronomy is filled with libraries like AstroPy and whatnot that people could just grab and use. For mechanical engineering, I don't know if there's NumPy or NumPy. Mm-hmm. Or, yep. But as far as specific to mechanical engineering, I really don't think there's any. There may be a few FEA solvers, but I don't think they're maintained or uh, well documented for sure. We typically found that a lot of uh, engineers end up dang in the MATLAB realm and not really venturing into any hard, more hardcore uh, languages. Sure. So they end up using all, because a lot of them want symbolic math, integration and, and ODE solvers and all of that. It's all right there in MATLAB. And then the companies typically pay for it. So you're in that realm. And, and once some group gets embedded in there, it's just going to stay in that space unless somebody takes some effort to get it out. All right. Awesome. Thanks for that background. Although we're not here exactly to talk about Deep dive in mechanical engineering. It is it's cool to get a look. Let's talk about your project, DeerPy GUI. So when I think of the GUI graphical user interface space in Python, well, there's TK Enter, there's iQt, there's a few other things, but they all have some kind of oddity about them. There's not like one framework that people just like, yeah, we're just gonna use that thing. It's not like a Swift and Objective C Cocoa controls would be in say a iOS app or something, where it's really clear right. you just generally use that one. Where did you guys get started working on GUIs and Python? What was the goal with DeerPy GUI? Like, where does it stand out? Where does it fit in this space? I got started in UIs, working at one of my internships while I was in school. And we were using this package, which I think I already mentioned once, Open, open Foam for CFD. And it didn't have a front-end interface at all. It was a C++ solver that just pretty sure just output text files in the end. I don't remember. It's been about six, seven years. So wanted to build a UI so that the other engineers could use it. And that, at that time, I was just getting into it. So I used to Kenter because, you know, I'm so Python. And then also used VTK, if I remember correctly. Th- that would, I would say that's the first experience I had with it. And then our senior design project, me and Preston were also on the same team for that, was to build an arc welding 3D printer. It actually created things by doing arc welding? Right. Use Rather the, than printing MIG. some other sort of material out of it. Correct. Yeah, it was a MIG uh, welder. I was on the software side. That person was on a lot more of the physical side. We should put <laughs> in the software for now. Yeah. 
anyway, built, that was the goal of the project. And we used some open source slicing software. I don't remember it's like slicer 3d or but a three for the E yeah, slicer. And it had three for the E and we basically modified that and ran it in a headless mode and built a UI on top of it using Tekinter and I want to say we used Pygame to be able to access OpenGL and at the time we're using legacy OpenGL. Those are first experience with, I guess, graphics APIs. Yeah. Which, yeah. OpenGL is pretty neat. It was certainly good when it first came out. It was as good as anything else, but I feel like it hasn't been getting the same amount of growth and adoption. Maybe some of the other frameworks, DirectX and Metal and so on. DeerPyGUI uses... uh, DirectX, Metal, and OpenGL at the moment. So we've been using a lot of them over the last few years. And the biggest reason for that is just that the hardware's changed since those APIs were created. And they no longer directly match the hardware. DeerPyGUI came out of trying to basically build something better than direct OpenGL access. What'd you say? Or or direct framework access? Not not quite. It came more out of the... um, I guess going back to answering where, where DBG itself came from. We had a, mm. a previous project that we worked on, a commercial project um, called Engineer Sandbox. The program in, had an embedded Python interpreter in it, and you basically created little mechanical engineering apps. And we, we could create one in, I don't know, an hour or two. And it was just this collection of apps. And over time, it started to get a little annoying to have to recompile it, especially before we added Python. We added Python because it was, we were getting tired of recompiling it every time we want to add an app or modify something and have to redeploy. From there, we embedded Python and it was very limited. You were able to create a few small apps. You can, it really wasn't a full GUI library. What happened is we were, we were trying to sell it. Didn't really work out. We could never really catch traction. We had some users and customers, but most people weren't really interested in it and developers aren't really interested in paying for libraries or any SDK. Most of them, they just want it to be free. So that just kind of fell allow and we, we, we gave up that's, on that after that. That's a tough place to be, right? You want to put a lot of energy into building tools and making stuff for people. How do you put enough time into it if, if people just want it to be free? I, maybe maybe what we got to do is dollars. maybe the world is the VS Code model where there's large companies that have other motivations for creating it rather than directly funding through that. But that, right. that's, a, that's a deeper conversation. That yeah. we Selling to, to developers in easy is the key point there. Yeah, so for sure. We did keep it in-house and we continue. We still have apps written in it at our day job. We ended up revisiting it because it didn't do everything we wanted to do. And we said, this time, let's target developers from the beginning. So it's not going to be very limited. It's going to be, you should be able to do most things you can do in any other UI library. And on top of that, make it free. And that's where your PyGUI came from. And between, between those stages, we had came across the library GUI or MGUI, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but yeah, yeah I'm not familiar with it. What is, what is this? It M-G-U-I. is a IMGUI. It is an extremely popular immediate mode graphical user interface for real time applications. It's C++ usually right? used. So C++. It, yeah, it's, it's C++. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it, it's, it's kind of a weird, I mean, it's an immediate mode interface and there's not many, I would say there is no Python user interface that's like that. And if you look so at it, I mean, maybe we should talk about the, the different modes real quick since you bring it mm-hmm. up is immediate mode versus retained mode. What are yeah, those two um, worlds? What does that mean? <laughs> I take this one. So I don't want you know the internet to jump on me here because there's a <laughs> lot of, a uh, <laughs> little bit of argument there, but there's, there's a few key points, I think, that really make it stand out. One of those is that the stage is not retained. If you have a slider that controls a float, it doesn't, you don't have to basically have a float stored on your side and a float stored in the UI, and you're constantly having to deal with keeping them up to date and things like that. Instead, the library itself doesn't store that at all. Now, the way it's implemented is a little different, but I'm talking about from the user side of using an immediate mode library. Mm-hmm. Does it retain any state? The other big thing is that, at least with especially with GUI, is the UI items and widgets are submitted every frame, so sixty times a second, and that gives you a credible amount of dynamicism, I guess you'd uh-huh. call that. So we had to do a lot of things. I mean, you completely redo the UI on a per frame basis. You can, yeah, it, as just, opposed to something where maybe you say a text box goes here and a button goes there. 
and then mm-hmm. set the text to the button. And then the button knows what its text is. This is almost like a, a game loop type thing where it right each time, like however, whatever the frame rate is, 50, 60, 200 frames a second, it's like draw the UI, draw the UI, draw the UI, right? Yep. And the, really interesting that that kind of 60 frames a second can lead into what we just put in a few weeks ago talking about not redrawing the GUI every 60, every, every frame. Right. That That's, that's a good point is the, one of the issues we had, especially early on with some users complaining as well, do you need to update everything every yeah. frame 60 and 60 times a second? So we did recently add in 1.1, the ability to basically stop only update if there is some user input, whether that's moving the mouse or resizing the window, things like that. Cause a lot of people, they'd complain to be more energy conscious with having your GUI run all the time, which you might care about, say on a laptop or a tablet, but less so if you're plugged into the wall. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And even some of the new, what are they? ProRes displays for like mm-hmm. the new MacBooks and stuff. Like the entire display will slow down if stuff right. is, is not happening. And I wonder if maybe if you had a GUI app that was refreshing the screen a lot, maybe it would prevent it from actually going into a slower mode. Look into how the variable refresh rate plays into the software actually rendering. Yeah. 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 I, I don't really work at that level. So I don't really know for sure, but we're all in the same space a little bit. This portion of Talk Pythonomy is brought to you by Sentry. How would you like to remove a little stress from your life? Do you worry that users may be encountering errors, slowdowns, or crashes with your app right now? Would you even know it until they sent you that support email? How much better would it be to have the error or performance details immediately sent to you, including the call stack and values of local variables and the active user recorded in the report? With Sentry, this is not only possible, it's simple. In fact, we use Sentry on all the TalkPython web properties. We've actually fixed a bug triggered by a user and had the upgrade ready to roll out as we got the support email. That was a great email to write back. Hey, we already saw your error and have already rolled out the fix. Imagine their surprise. Surprise and delight your users. Create your Sentry account at talkpython.fm Sentry. And if you sign up with the code TalkPython, all one word, it's good for two free months of Sentry's business plan, which will give you up to 20 times as many monthly events as well as other features. Create better software, delight your users, and support the podcast. Visit talkpython.fm Sentry and use the coupon code TALKPYTHON. It looks to me like the, some of the, there's some similarities from the I am GUI in terms of the UI look and feel, but then... Mm-hmm. You've got the retained mode versus immediate mode and things like that. What's your relationship between these? Uh, I'm GUI itself just outputs. You can read as read me, but outputs an optimized vertex buffer. It sends basically the coordinates and everything needed to draw the UI, but it is up to you to take that and actually do something with it and render it. We use that. We use I'm GUI to basically create those vertex buffers. As far as the retained mode stuff, originally we were doing more of a one-to-one wrapping with that library. And we started to hit some performance issues with Python itself, just because 60 times a second, if you're having to do a lot of conversions between maybe the Python types and the C, the underlying C types, that can slow things down. Also just the gill gets in the way with a lot of different. So uh, the, what we did with the retain mode is we basically just created a barrier between that, where we do go against the immediate mode style thing. And we have, we do keep up with things like the underlying values, just the floats, the the ints, the strings, whatever it is. So it goes back to a more retained mode, which is what every other library is that most Python users would be used to. The yeah. float actually stores a, or sorry, an input text has its underlying string and you can get that value, set that value. A lot of UI code, you don't even need to have some variable that holds the thing. You might just put it in the button and if you need it back, you could get it from the button potentially, right? right? Yep. And that's yeah. how it works. So. I guess one of the only other things that's neat is underneath it, it is just a raw, I'm pretty sure probably using smart pointer. And you can actually link a lot of these widgets together to when they're truly controlling the same value. And mm-hmm. you, you can get some pretty cool effects with that to where you're directly moving. This slider is updating the plot and there's not some update code that's having to happen or any callbacks. It's just that they're truly the same value. And because yeah. we're updating 60 times a second, you're able to see, um, those changes live, which is pretty neat. And you can create some pretty cool stuff with that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Before we 
jump into some of the details, if you visit the GitHub page, which of course I'll link to, let's maybe just talk through some of the features. Uh, I was going to go to the gallery, but maybe the features is a better place to start. And you guys have this engineering background. It feels like a lot of what this creates and allows us to build really easily has this engineering visualizing aspect to it, right? Yeah, yeah. So maybe talk us through some of the features and things you can do. So for example, one of the things you have, you can see right at the top of the feature section is the I am plot stuff, which looks like really interactive and dynamic well, plots and graphs and pie charts and so on. Yeah, so, it's, yeah it's, another, it's another immediate mode interface that a the guy that wrote it, Evan Peasant, Peasant, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, who also happens to be located here in Houston, wrote it on top of Amgui and tried to model that immediate mode interface. So again, you get all the same dynamic features that you get with GUI itself. And that's why you can see on here a lot of the, just how crazy dynamic it looks, right? With the live que yep. querying and yeah, just everything you see there. And obviously, we, again, built on top of it because we have to go from that immediate mode to retain mode style. And it, it, you have multiple axes, you have drag and drop support, custom drag and drop support. There's a lot of series you don't see there, candlesticks, shaded series, stem yeah. plots, I mean, yeah, one that looks really good is this uh, one down here that has full zoomed out graph and then a graph below it that as you pan around and zoom in, you can actually, it's like a high level and then a, a low level or zoomed in detail view of what you're exploring there. Yep. And then that's a pretty cool feature. We actually then the demo as well. It's, and it's actually not technically built in. That's a query region. So you have to set up another plot with the same. It also looks like they have animations and stuff. The one below it sort of just cruising by without any interaction. So are you able to just feed it live data and it just keeps refreshing 60 frames a second or something? Yeah, that's exactly how it's working because it's, again, already updating 60 times a second. All, all you're doing is changing the data. And it just by default, you, you basically get an animation. If the data changes, it's going to re-render it no matter what. And so then it gets a different picture, right? Yep, it, it's worth noting that... Um, it's only 60 frames a second. If you if you use VSync with your with your screen, it, it actually runs as fast as your screen can run. So 144 to whatever hurts your monitors on. Oh, yeah. interesting. Depends okay. on your GPU and everything else. Yeah. We'll control the, the render loop so you can actually slow it to whatever exact frame resolution you want. You could 30, whatever you want. Right. You probably can't exceed your monitor, but you could slow it down or, or do something if you need to. You can, it, it just won't. You won't. <laughs> The effect, yeah. of, the effect of people seeing it, they won't see it any right, faster yeah. Than, yeah. than that. Yeah, that's really cool. Cross-platform. There, yeah, it, it is cross-platform. But I was going back to there are some cases where we will turn VSync off to just test how fast certain things are happening right, for a while. Right, because you want to know what's guys. the performance upper limit of this, regardless of this, yeah. the screen. And a lot of people love to send us messages with that while we're trying to do something like update a texture or something as fast as they can and trying to get 300 or 400 frames a second. So it was pretty neat to see that. What else should I highlight in here? These are all, there's a bunch of graphs. I think people really just need to go see them, but there's there's nice heat map looking things. There's some, some statistical graphs. stuff. Anything else you want to shout out on the... Yeah, there's some candlesticks. We've seen some yeah. great interaction with some APIs through some actual cryptocurrency interfaces people have done. They've made crypto wallets, which is pretty cool. We've seen some of that. Right. Yeah, so we've seen probably maybe 10 of those. So just a lot of people seem interested in that. Interesting. Yeah, so people are using DeerPy GUI to build something like a, a, a dashboard trader application. A lot of dashboards, yeah. Okay. A lot. We can pull in a comment from the audience, Mr. Hypermagnetic. Hey, good to see you again. I've always been curious why not use HTML for desktop GUIs? And then also adds that these are definitely nice looking graphs and user interface, which is cool. I'll, maybe I'll let you all take a shot at answering that question for you. If you got uh, thoughts, if not, I could throw something out there as well. Because sure, we got, we got a ton of Electron job. apps that fit that realm. That's right? what I was like, going to bring up with got, Electron. And the... VS Code and other things, Slack and whatnot. I think there's a couple areas that you would care about. One is you probably are not going to be getting 300 frames a second refresh rate with HTML. There's a, a lot of layers in there. If you want to take advantage of the GPUs in like deep ways, if you want to push a mesh of objects in there and then have them re-rendered. That's not really what HTML is for. The, the native integration also gets tricky. I, right. I don't know about GeoPy GUI, but you want to integrate with 
the menu bar and other stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. you, we, we need the hardware access. You, now you can use WebGL, and but basically you'd be using HTML just to create that GL canvas. And then after that, it's it's the same thing as what we're doing now. So you could do that. I think we have some sample projects where we where we use that. You can get 60 frames a second higher, but again, you're just using HTML just to get to the canvas. And then after that, the HTML's gone. Oh, yeah, you'd get for anything. Let me see here if I can get a quick read on, say, like uh, VS Code here. Hold on. A little activity monitor doesn't. By having to run through the browser, there's your, your tech stat becomes considerably deeper when we're, we're trying to be as light as possible. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to do a lot of the stuff that we're seeing on the screen here, you're almost down to rendering directly on Canvas. And then at that point, there's not a huge value for the HTML side of thing because. Right. You're just drawing pixels anyway. So to wrap that up, um, as Hypermagnetic says, I've seen performance issues with Electron versus more native apps. Antonio out there. Hey, Antonio. Good to see you. Loves these plotting features. He's also in the oil and gas industry. So very, very cool. Great. And following up on that, John says, there's also a limitation to threading and concurrency, which Mm -hmm. you definitely have more control, right? Very quickly. So for example, like I just launched VS Code and it's doing nothing. And there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten processes running VS Code, which quick math across those looks like something like 350 megs of RAM. I don't know what GeoPyGUI would take, but I suspect it would be far lower than that. Should be much lower. Multiprocessing and, and so on. It's pretty neat. Although Python itself is not known for its like massive taking advantage of multi-core stuff because of the gill. Still, you got a little more flexibility. Cool. Uh, it's always interesting to think about. Now, let's see. Let's scroll down and look through a few more of these these pictures here. So you've got this node editor, and this node sounds like a, a core thing in this UI framework. Yeah, that's another one of those libraries that somebody had built on top of um, GUI. It's usually just a single file and a pretty light. A, lo- a lot of people made some really cool stuff with that because it you could put any widget that's in the UI library in these nodes. So let me take a shot at trying to describe what this looks like for people listening. Uh, you can check out under node editor on the GitHub page. It almost looks like a database diagram where you've got relationships between these nodes, but instead of just having table info, you've got graphs, you've got XY values, you've got other little bits of computation and stuff that are visually in the nodes that are also connected together. That looks pretty cool. Kind of like a data flow thing, which is an actual picture you're looking at. It is a tool we built here at work to prototype some of the systems that we were working on here, we took a little piece of that as the snapshot. But yeah, it's a pretty cool feature. A lot of people do a lot of cool things with it. Um, so it was the idea I could build a little section that will take in some, let's say, fluid flow rate and then apply some algorithm and, and visualize that. But then it also is an output value that can be flow is passed on to some other simu- part of a simulation that's also yeah. shown up there and stuff. Is that my understanding? Yeah. That's that's it. And you can redirect the inputs from one to the output of the other mm-hmm. or whatever widget that are being that's connected. That's really interesting. Whether it be a uh, slider and yeah. int input or radio box, any of those. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty low level. Some of this stuff can be a little bit misleading when you look at it and it looks like it should just come right out of the box. And most of these are not. For instance, the this node editor that you're looking at, in general, you create these nodes and when a user tries to grab one of the pins and link it to another one, the, a callback is ran and it's up to the actual user to decide whether to make that link where it, it's given information about where it came from, where it's trying to connect. So it, it's really up mm-hmm. to the user to make something with it. It's pretty low level. And, and you'll notice that with a lot of these, even in the plots, they're low level and it's, it's meant for the user to wrap on top of and build more complex functionality because we want it to be as generic as possible. There's an example of Tetris, like who doesn't love Tetris, of course. What is this last one here? Several tools to help de- developers. Uh, there is a lot of built-in tools. As like, far as is this like tab tab views and list views and stuff like that? Or what are we talking about? As an example, like you create, whenever you go to create the UI, you may create a window and then add a group and then a collapsing header and then a button. And you have this parent relationship. One of the tools is the item registry. And when, if, if you just type in the command show item registry, you get this basically tree view where you can look through all the items in your UI, click on it, see information about the state of it. Is it visible? Mm-hmm. Is it clicked on? Is it hovered? That's one of them. Most of these are used for debugging. Yeah, it's mostly 
Yeah, it's tricky to get a view into that kind of stuff in the UI, right? Right. Obviously, you can print out something or set a breakpoint and see it, but a lot of times they're hierarchical and, and whatnot, and, and the right view, visualization of that makes a big difference. Another great one is to say, if you're loading a texture or a couple of textures into the texture registry, preparing them to be added to a widget, you can use the texture registry viewer to actually go in and inspect your different resources like you can preview it before you actually actually use it. Oh, right. that's really cool. Yeah. And nice. with fonts, you can inspect fonts and other things like that. Is Dear GUI primarily focused on 2D UIs or does it have a 3D component? So we're currently it's 2D, but we are working oh. on a 3D engine to go with it. But the UI won't be 3D, but there will be 3D widgets and we can have support for that now, but it's not hardware accelerated. The actual 3D sure. engine we're working on will be. Yeah, cool. So for example, like all these charts that are on the GitHub page that are active and moving, like I can totally imagine that one of is spherical or it's it's modeling mm-hmm. spikes that represent peaks of some kind of measurement all over the place. And you want to look at it from different directions and, and whatnot. Yeah, and I, I think at the bottom of the readme, you can see some examples of uh, users that have already skipped ahead and hacked in <laughs> to be able to do some 3D work. Yeah. Like there's a gallery section that people should check out. One of the things I really like to do when I hear about a new UI framework or some tool that does UI graphical stuff is to just go look at the screenshots and go, what, I want my app to look like this? <laughs> Maybe that looks pretty cool. Let me take the time to learn it. Honestly, it blows my mind. There's a lot of UI frameworks out there that don't have a single screenshot of what <laughs> they right. look like. What's your, your whole job is to build pictures. Show us some yeah. pictures. Really important yeah. gallery part of it. Yeah, the gallery is looking really good. So one, it looks like almost the first one is almost like an AutoCAD thing. It looks like some kind of turbine or something is, is there. Maybe you know more about it. You guys can say One more. of the users made it. Wasn't sure what they were working on. We helped them a little bit with getting access to the, uh, the underlying OpenGL context because I was on Linux, but not sure what they were working on past that. Uh, this next one looks like some kind of modeling system. Another one of those user saw a user with it. We snapped the photo and... Yeah, no That's idea awesome. what they were doing with it. Just looked cool. Definitely looks cool. Bunch of left-hand side, right-hand side elements here. Almost looks like it could be modeling some sort of machine learning thing, but I don't think so. Yeah, yeah definitely some kind of interesting model here. It might have been. Some really nice visualizers here for, it looks like maybe looking at some astronomy and stuff, which is great. And then a game and some more drawing tools. Yeah, here, is this maybe a, a ray tracing that, kind of no, that was just a, Fong, just a Fong renderer that we were working on when testing some of the earlier versions of the 3D engine we're working on. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So that's just some of the early prototypes. And we thought it was a pretty neat picture to do. And you can do that now if you just kind of, like that other user did, just hack in and get access to the OpenGL context or Grim direct tags. Okay. So one of the things it sounds like you can do is work with your GUI, but when... Maybe there's some low-level thing you need to do, like a shader context or some weird graphical thing. If it's not directly supported, you can just go, all right, let me just get straight to the open the GL context object <laughs> or, or right. structure and, and just do some open GL stuff on it. Is that right? Or that, metal? That's or correct. And for now, that's that's the way it's done. But one of the things that we've been working on, and a lot of the users that have been around a while know this is, like I said, right now the backends are for Windows, we're using DirectX 11. For um, Linux, we're using OpenGL. And for Mac, we're using Metal. That was early on, that was probably a bad decision. So now we've been working on replacing the backend with Vulkan across the board. Then part of that would be that we'd be able to directly support giving users access to the GPU there. Because one of the things with the library is we do want it to be cross-platform and not have to change the code, pretty much not have to change the code at all across the platform. Right, and right now, with us using different backends, we wanted to expose access to compute shaders. Well, when you're on Windows, you'd have to write it in HLSL. When you're in Mac, you'd have to write it in whatever the language is, Metal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in OpenGL, you GLSL. So by switching to the Vulkan backend, we're going to be able to expose that and use the same thing across the board. And that's part of... One of the big things that we've been working on and it's taking a lot of time, but, and, and the 3D engine it, itself is also going to be written in Vulcan. See pictures of that too, by the way, on the... Uh, okay, where, where do I find those? Go to the very top. You might have to actually click on my name, but it's DearPi3D. Oh, understand. got it, got it. Okay, so it's a separate repo up there. It uh, will be combined. Well, it's just while we're prototyping. It's, sure, sure. 
right here. Oh, and by the way, nice uh, GitHub profile. The you know your nice readme looks good. Yeah, here you go. So the Deer Pie Deer Pie GUI 3D engine. Yeah, pretty neat. Oh, look at that. Yeah, you do have some cool pictures in here. That will like, be and that's the stuff you mean, true 3D stuff. Yeah, that's true 3D real time. Let's go back just for a minute on this this cross platform business because I think this is worth thinking about. First of all, it's I was really impressed that you had support for DirectX and Metal and OpenGL uh, because that means on Windows, you get the, the best option there, which is DirectX on macOS, especially in the new Apple Silicon ones. Mm-hmm. If you want to take advantage of the GPUs that are built in there, the best way to do that is Metal and, and so on. But yeah, those APIs are super different. <laughs> so if you're going to expose them, say, here, let me just hand you the low-level context and, and talk straight to it while setting them up for getting locked into to one or the other, plus also having to learn Metal and or right. learn DirectX yeah. and all that, right? And, that, and again, that's part of the reason we are switching the bulk. And we will leave those backends as legacy. Legacy is a bad word, but you'll be able to switch to those backends. But if you're really wanting to do the low-level stuff and wanting to access the 3D engine, but you will have to use Vulkan. Yeah, so it. tell people about what this Vulkan thing is. I've heard of it as a way to have one API that talks both DirectX and Metal and OpenGL or something like that. Is that sort of the, well, it, the deal? OpenGL, DirectX 11, and I guess that's the two main ones. Are the older, I guess the previous generation graphics APIs, and those are used to, they go through the driver and they talk to your GPU directly. Like I said earlier on in the in this, that... Basically, um, the hardware has changed considerably since those APIs were designed. Very, very different. So it's a lot more work on the driver developers to have to, you know, go from here's how the hardware works to here's the API we had. And so the move over the last five or six years has been towards these lower level graphics APIs like Metal, DirectX 12, and Vulkan. And these are considerably lower level, just... As an example, to get a triangle on the screen in DirectX 11, it's maybe 300 lines of code. In OpenGL, it's maybe 100, if that. To do it in Vulkan, you're, you're easily at 1,000, just getting a triangle on the screen. Really? I was already right. feeling bad that it was 300 in DirectX. And I can just remember the, the OpenGL it's, code. You know, set the scale, set the transform, set the viewport, all, all yeah, of those it, things. It's, it's not easy programming type of work. It, but, so Vulkan is even lower than that, huh? Right. Vulkan and DirectX 12 are really your lowest level, but DirectX 12 is just just Windows. And and with that, with these APIs, you're able to utilize so much more in terms of what your GPU is capable of, but you have to manage a lot more. And that's part of why that even 3D engine and S-switching the back end is you know, taking as long as it is, is because we the driver developers do a lot less for those APIs. Yeah, as an example, in DirectX and OpenGL, you can say, I need a texture and load it with data. And that's it. And you can do as many times as you want. And Vulkan and DirectX 12, there's a max number of times you can do that. I think it's the, the low numbers, maybe 4,000 allocations. So it's up to you to instead, you know, allocate one big block, manage it yourself, and not keep doing that as an example. Right. Yeah. Um, you end up with those sort of maps, right? Where this square is the actual whole picture or something else, but to the right of it might be some other thing that you, you load all into one texture and you viewport right. into it or something oh, yeah yep and another yeah, one of the big things it that could be fun but it, <laughs> also you pull your hair out because uh, yeah. another one of the things that the new apis have changed is actually having to synchronize between the gpu and cpu and DirectX and OpenGL. when you swap the the buffers execute this draw wh- whatever you're doing your your main loop where you're doing that you don't have to wait till it's finished it they it's automatically synchronized between the gpu and cpu i see with the new APIs, that's not the case. You typically, you have to actually add in barriers and fences between the different operations and just a lot of stuff. And you typically have more than one frame processing at a time. You can you can actually utilize multiprocessing, which is a problem right now with Python because of the gill. So even though Vulkan has that, you, you can't really utilize it yet. Maybe okay. maybe the no gill stuff will gain traction and it, it won't Hopefully. be a problem anymore. One, one can hope. So when I'm looking at this Vulkan page here, I see Windows, Switch, Stadia... Linux, Android. I don't see Mac OS. Is, is it still support Mac or what's the story there? So, yeah, he's saying the Molten VK is a layer on top of Metal so that you can use it okay. for Mac. That's, it's, it. it's not directly supported. I mean, you know how Apple is. You got to use Objective-C. They don't want you using C++. It's not as supported. 
the same thing. They, they deprecated OpenGL, and as of right now, there is no direct support for Vulkan. So Molten VK is the... See, it's like an intermediate layer, layer between Metal and Vulkan. Right. Yeah, Talk cool. about possibly leaving Metal in. Uh, yeah, we, we did as a support. It's a possibility it, to leave in... It, it breaks your perfect abstraction, though. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do, though? <laughs> Pretty cool. Metal's already doing that right now. Some of the yeah. formats for the textures aren't supported. Um, oh. That's a good point. Which is a little annoying. Yeah, everyone's a snowflake over in the Mac world. That is correct. <laughs> As I say on my Mac. Okay. Let's see. We're, one of the things I liked when I was looking through here is you've got uh, a nice getting started tutorial. Maybe we could talk just a little bit about just what the code looks like to get some stuff on the screen. But you also have some video tutorials. Jonathan, I know you put some of these together. A while back, they're a little outdated. They're 06, 06 which is pretty old, but we need yeah. to recreate them soon. As someone who creates a bunch of videos, it's they're very tricky to keep them in sync. That, you can't just edit a few words or change a, a thing here, right? It's, it's yep. different. But yeah, so if people want to learn through the video style, they can go through and watch some of these and get a sense of like simple plotting or working with tabs and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, most, most of the things are there. Documentation still is a bit, but with video tutorials and our read mirror, it's still a little bit lacking. and there's still some stuff that's undocumented that we're having to add. But that's part of the point of the demo is you can see how all those, you know, most of the features are there and you can see how to code them. Yeah. But that's no excuse for us not continuing <laughs> to improve the docs. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by TopTal. Are you looking to hire a developer to work on your latest project? Do you need some help with rounding out that app you just can't seem to get finished? Maybe you're even looking to do a little consulting work of your own. You should give TopTal a try. You may know that we have mobile apps for our courses over at TalkPython on iOS and Android. I actually used TopTal to hire a solid developer at a fair rate to help create those mobile apps. It was a great experience and I can totally recommend working with them. I met with a specialist who helped figure out my goals and technical skills that were required for the project. Then they did all the work to find just the right person. I had short interviews with two folks, I hired the second one, and we released our apps just two months later. If you'd like to do something similar, please visit talkpython.fm slash and click that Hire Top Talent button. It really helps support the show. That's true. But also contributing to the docs and contributing a tutorial or something like that. That's also a good way for people to contribute. Yeah, that is it's a good, very good way. Are, are you all open to having contributors and PRs and other things along those lines? Yeah, I had a bunch of PRs and welcome to join the Discord. We, we're in there all the time talking with people about when they're working on uh, different spots in the API. The problem is, you know, most of the users are Python users and libraries written in C and Objective-C and things like that. So it, a little bit of a disconnect there where a lot of users would like to help. And when they go over to the yeah. library and see it's that, they go, oh, right. You know what? Actually, I wanted to work on a Python project. We have this problem in a lot of the very popular places. Like people want to contribute to Python itself. And often that right. means C, not Python. Mm-hmm. And go, mm-hmm. darn it. People want to contribute to Jupyter. But a lot of that time, a lot of times that means JavaScript, <laughs> not Python. Right. They go, oh, come on. But... Yeah, that's what it, that's kind of what it means to build tools sometimes. Yeah. Uh, you guys have the demo fired up on your screen here. Maybe you want to just talk us through a couple of the highlights and uh, how we get this thing going. Sure. Got to um, keep in mind that not everyone can see what we're seeing. Yeah, so you can see the demo. And we, and we modeled this after um, GUI's demo and some of the other demos we saw of people doing similar things where you can see all the different features. So uh, if I pip install DearPyGUI, does this, co- is there just a command I run to just get this yeah, going? Yeah. It's one of the modules you have import dear pygui dot dear pygui and then you have import dear pygui dot demo and there's just one command show demo. So you could even do that from a REPL if you wanted, right? Yeah, you can. Yeah. And okay. do that right. So you can kind of see you know, a lot of the different widgets, just your typical UI widgets that you have. Yeah, go um, back to the widgets real quick for a sec. Yeah, so you've got a, a lot of nice ones. You've got buttons, you've got checkboxes, you've got radio buttons, you know, like you can only select one versus checkboxes. You've got Drop down combo boxes, text, text with placeholder hint, I guess. One of the areas that you have a lot of UIs around is the the slider, what do you call them? Slider float, slider ints. It's mm-hmm. like a, a thing that has a number, but then as you slot, you can not just type in it, but you can drag it around and actually right. scale it. I, I see this a lot in the Adobe 
tools audition going. If you want to change something, you can click on a number and just move the mouse instead of typing to the number. There's a lot of these other things, because again, this is really meant for a lot of 3D engines and content creation. A lot of color maps and okay. things like that. Let's see what else. Text input, a lot of stuff here. And remember, I told you a lot of the back ends are the same exact numbers, so you can get things automatically like this. All of these are linked together. All right, so what you're doing, there's like a three text boxes, one that's plain right. text and two that are, are passwords. And as you type in one, they all, it's not real practical for passwords, but as you type in one, yeah. <laughs> it'll show you in the different yeah, So locations. we're showing different flags, just different do, flags. Right yeah, there. how do you create that binding between them? Is that... um? Well, I'll tell you, there's no actual binding. They're truly the same value underneath. When, whenever you go to create this, and say you call this item password one, when you go to create the second one, you can specify a source as password one, and it will just, rather than have its own value, it will just truly use a pointer to the other one. And that's okay. why all these... Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So that's how they stay in sync is... Yeah, they, just, they are the nice, same data. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. There's no callback that has to run. Right. Um, a lot of basic, simple plots for just yeah, pretty simple stuff. Let's see. Again, these are linked in the same way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I encourage people, if they want to think about this framework, is... Create a virtual environment, pip install geopygui, and then do the import command to run the demo. Yeah, nearly. Date pickers. But some of the cooler ones that, you know, you want to see, I mean, I could show these. These are all pretty typical on most UI libraries. Not the, some of the ones that are on the jobs. That's true. Uh, some of the ones, I guess, we have a table API, which... Oh, that's nice looking. Sort of pretty cool. It, you're able to... These examples are just showing text, but you could put any widget, you could put plots, you can, you can do all kinds of stuff. So with yeah, these. with the table one, probably you know, people think about it, like it probably would be called a grid in a lot of frameworks. It's yeah. kind of a, a read-only Excel type of view, but very colorful and, and nice. These aren't read-only. These oh. can be any widget you want. They're, they're more yeah. layout like. Oh, you, so you could put like a graph in one of the yeah, cells. You could, put a, it, well, you could put a node editor, you could put a, anything you want in these. It's best very to cool. think about a table is more or less a layout, essentially just giving you columns and rows where you can put okay. anything in it. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And you can see here, uh, this sorting one, you can kind of see, you got a checkbox in here. I think there's mm -hmm. an input and different things. Tables, cool. Like I said, there's tons of plots. Yeah, there's a lot anyone of plots. Mm -hmm. there's, and we have that example that you saw in the... Oh, yeah. You even have that detail, uh, high level and the detail graph in there. That's cool. Do you have trees? We do. Stuff with textures and the high performance type stuff. Mm -hmm. The for those that haven't seen, where's that? The node editor. So those that are unfamiliar with that, I ran out of room here. <laughs> no, this is these node yeah, editors. That, that node editor is exactly what I expected. So you got these three little boxes with different bits of information or graphs, and you just drag and connect them. And yeah, that's fantastic. And you can put any widget in the library in these, so it's not limited to just you know a small subset. And then again, with the drawing API, your typical stuff that you used to and other drawing APIs, being able to draw a line, a box, a cube, things like that. And then also um, some support for a lot of 3D operations, things like perspective divide and depth clipping right. and all that to help support these type things. Let's maybe round out our conversation here by talking a bit about just give us a sense on what it looks like to write some code. So there's not, I'm guessing there's not a graphical designer type of thing like xcode right. storyboard or whatever we're not or, big or fans you, of those yeah you do this through code you build up your ui through code and layout elements right. just give us a sense of how do i get like a, a text box and a button or, or something sure. on the screen what what does the code story look like we talked about the 100 lines of opengl or whatever so pretty much every dpg app you just import dpg we, we do it as dpg most of the time from there, you'll create a context, which basically sets up the um, GUI context, sets up, I um, know it sets up our internal context with all the different settings and state. Oftentimes, these lower level frameworks, they have to go and get some context from the graphics card itself and like get that from the operating system. And I'm sure that kind of wraps that stuff all up. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, from there, you typically create the viewport. And again, that's platform specific and Win32, we're using Win32, we're using X11 on Linux and on Mac, we're using uh, Carryover or whatever it is. We don't touch that one in about a year. Um, <laughs> you got it working. From there, you've decided to stay away from it. <laughs> got it working and walked away from it for a while. From oh, so there, the, the viewport is basically like a, an empty window. Right. It's your actual operating system window. 
Got it. We, we call it a viewport. Um, and from there, you can create something like a window. There, there's these root objects. A window is like the GUI window that you see below the, the blue window that you would see on our demo, things like that. They're floating windows within the main viewport. From there, to just add something like a text widget, it's DPG add text, DPG add button, DPG add input text, whatever um, the widget is. And you impose the hierarchy of parent-child relationship with context managers kind of the way that so you could if, just I'm, use... if I'm going to create a, a window, one of the windows, one of multiple possible windows, mm-hmm. instead of creating a window object and say window add this or that, you would create a context manager and just do a bunch of ads. Because then it all just goes to that window. Right. And it's, we're not object oriented, which kind of also sets us apart here. If you weren't using the context manager, that same operation would be DPG add window and it returns either an ID or you can put the ID in with the keyword tag equals you know, right. whatever your ID is. Then you would push to the container stack. And then when you're done adding items, you pop it back off. The context manager handles that for you. Right. So right. it's adding the yeah, window, nice. pushing it and popping it. And if you wanted to do something, like I said, it's not object oriented. So when you do add button, you don't get a button back. You get a handle to the internal button. And then you use that handle and you can store it. Just say cool. B equals DPG hat button. And then all the various commands, uh, you would use that handle to uh, control it. If you want to say, get the checked state of a checkbox. Right. Control value like that. Or, yeah. Or configure everything you did when you created it. When you started off, you can modify later on using configure item. And then you just pass in that. Um, handle and go from there. Cool. Is and there then, um, an event loop type of thing? There it is. So after, so after you've created the viewport and you add your widgets, you would do set up dear PyGUI. And what that runs is that starts up the second thread. We have two threads. We have the rendering thread running, and then we have a callback thread where all the Python's at. So that's what set up dear PyGUI does. Show viewport actually shows the viewport and starts basically the, the platform specific event loop. From there, start dear PyGUI. That is your event loop. If you actually want to see the event loop, you would just do while is while it is DeerPyGUI running, render DeerPyGUI frame. Right. And you could do everything you want inside of there. And then when you're completely done, you destroy the context. Looks super straightforward. One thing that I don't see here is the callbacks. So like when the slider slides or the button clicks, is there some way mm-hmm. to hook that action? Like obviously it, the save button is going to need some, something. Yep, it's a callback. It's a keyword for callback and basically it can have three arguments. The uh, sender, which will send you the ID of the item that called the callback. The second one is app data, which for us that can be um, either the value or if the callback's related to window resizing, it'll be the new size. It's just plat- it's data that DPG sends you. And then right. the third argument, user data, is uh, user can pretty much put anything they want then it'll get passed through. And it's useful for a lot of people that are creating OFB wrappings around the library. Yeah, nice. Is that stuff. is there one callback that handles all the events and then you do like a switch statement? It's really up to the user. You can have a different callback for every one or you can have one master callback where you just check the sender and do different operations based on what called the callback. Yeah. But you have yeah. a little bit of freedom there. And we do have nice. callbacks you can attach to inputs such as the mouse or the keyboard or the window resize, like you mentioned, we have callbacks mm-hmm. set up for that. So yeah. It is nice to be able to say when this button gets clicked, do this. And that makes it real simple. But there's also times that you might wanna I want to capture all the button clicks and then do some common thing regardless of which button gets clicked. It, it's nice to have that flexibility to go either way. That's the biggest thing. We try to be as flexible as possible and allow really geared towards a lot of people wanting to wrap and create their own kind of interfaces. So there's a lot of freedom from the stuff we did. So I noticed that you have this, you call it the viewport, this like window uh, that comes out of the operating system and then the DeerPy GUI windows live in that space. Is there a way to simulate it looking almost like the DeerPy GUI window is the whole thing? Could I not show the title bar of the one window and then maximize the, the inner window to fill it? You can undecorate the viewport. There are settings for that. And then we have a command that's set primary window and you can basically set one of the one of your MGUI windows is the primary one, and it'll fill the whole viewport and you get that. But you can't necessarily move them. When you do that, you can't have multiple viewports at the moment. We're still working on that. Is there like modal dialogues and, and that kind of there's, stuff in there? There is modal dialogues. There is file dialogues. A lot of people still tend to just import to Kenter and use their file dialog because a lot of people don't like ours. Just right-click um, context menus. Yeah, it was, yeah, it looks great. Like I said, people who are 
possibly interested should check out the gallery on the GitHub page. That's a good litmus test of what does it look like? You want to use it? I think it looks pretty good. I like it. Share it. We're getting close to the end here. One thing, we talked a lot about the future stuff already. Maybe we don't really need to go into that. We've got the Vulkan backend, the 3D engine and stuff like that. Right. One of the things that I always want to do with a GUI is put it into my taskbar or put it into my macOS dock. And I want to <laughs> be able to give a binary thing to a user and not tell them about virtual environments and pip install and all that. What's the deployment story about giving somebody a distributable version of this app? So a lot of users have used some of the tools, Pi, was Pi like 2. Pi installer or Pi 2 Things like that. Yep. We did early on uh, when the, we first started the project, had a batch file and some bash files that packaged it up for you, actually created the executable and everything. So we could hand them around here, embedded the Python interpreter and everything. We did remove those, but we do eventually plan on adding them back. So we don't, we really don't like having dependencies on other libraries. So even though you are using that now, we, we would like to bring back that. And it wouldn't be that hard. I mean, we already do that. When we develop it, we, we are using an embedded version of Python and an executable. Um, we're, we're not actually using this, what is it, disutils and we're, yeah. we're not using any of that. We're, we're actually just using the Python C API directly and embedding it. Yeah, just as a sidebar, one of the things I really think would benefit Python as a community is if there was just a built-in Python-M package or Absolutely. build executable or whatever, and out the other side comes a .app, a binary Linux app, or a .exe, and, and you just hand it out, right? There's so many scenarios where people would like a tool that they would like to be able to share. I feel like it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. People aren't doing that very frequently. So why do we need why do we need that feature? Was it well they're not doing it because it's so super hard and fragile, right? right? If it were as easy as pushing absolutely. a button, I think maybe people would do it more. So I don't know. Anyway. Uh, absolutely. That was one of the original reasons for our engineer sandbox project way early on is we did do the tools in Python, but we couldn't hand them to people. We had to tell them, well, you gotta install Python and then pip install this. So the idea of that one was we were able to just hand them that. A little bit. Wrap up on the audience side, Mr. Hypermagnetic once again says, very nice design and similar to small JS libraries. Yeah, nice. Appreciate yeah, it. Looks, looks good. Last thing, I always am interested how these projects gain traction, how people find time and energy to put into them. And one of the ways is for companies that use them or people that use them to sponsor you guys. So you guys have a, a sponsor option here, which is part of the, um, the GitHub sponsor story, right? Right. We have Which I think that's sponsors. actually a pretty big deal because it used to just be like, oh, you put a PayPal donate button or something on there, which is fine and all, but this it is, is an more. awesome feature that they, yeah. uh, I guess Microsoft added. I assume uh, that they're the ones that did it. And yeah, it's pretty good. We have, uh, we do have the Microsoft, the GitHub sponsors, Open Collected and the Buy Me a Coffee. Yeah. So this is a part-time project for you guys, not full-time. It sounds like you're doing Correct. mechanical engineering work full-time and then also this both at work, but then also bringing it out to that, the community a little bit. That is that. correct. If it directly applies to something we're doing at work, a bug or something, we'll add it here. But for the most part, it is at, at home at night, you know, after our families are in bed and <laughs> working on it there. A labor of love. Awesome. That is correct. It's great to see more UI frameworks and more UI innovation in the Python space. So thanks for doing that. Sure. Now, before we get out of here, let me ask you all the final two questions. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use? Typically PyCharm. Yeah, pretty much PyCharm. And then a notable PyPI package, something you've run across. You're like, oh, this is awesome. People should know about. Typically, just NumPy is about the only one. Mm. NumPy is about the only one to use. We like to reinvent the wheel. Fewer dependencies, right on. Anthony out in the audience says, I'm guessing, question mark, does nice. Dear Python GUI play nicely with third-party libs like uh, Nootka, PyInstaller, and so on? PyInstaller, I know it does. Nootka, do not believe it does. And then NumPy or anything that supports the buffer protocol, you, you can use in a lot of our functions. Very nice work. Uh, final call to action. People want to get started with DearPy GUI or uh, maybe give back to it. Sorry, and Anthony says <laughs> it was a statement, not, not, a, not a question. Thanks, uh, Anthony. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah, final call to action. People want to get started with DearPy GUI. What do they do? Just pip install and run the demo on the README. Uh, you can also join our Discord server. There's about a thousand. Go through you read the docs for sure. Read the docs. Contributing would be nice. We're still in the middle of refactoring a lot of things internally, so it may be a little hard. But other than that, also just sponsoring really helps out, uh, makes it worth it. Jonathan, Preston, thanks for being here. Yep. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, you bet.
This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Take some stress out of your life. Get notified immediately about errors and performance issues in your web or mobile applications with Sentry. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and get started for free. And be sure to use the promo code TALKPYTHON, all one word. With TopTal, you get quality talent without the whole hiring process. Start 80% closer to success by working with TopTal. Just visit talkpython.fm slash TopTal to get started. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.